Welcome to the Beer Vulnerabilis Beer Podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And we help men communicate and build empathy. Today, we're doing a deep dive with my interview of Albert, and uh, we're ready to, uh, to really you know, get into his life and uh, kind of see what he's all about. So Albert and I, you know, as we said before, we met over Instagram. And one thing that we did right off the bat was just communicate instantly. Like it was just, we had sparks, it was chemistry, you know, we just had a lot of fun. So uh, what was it? What was the things that you kind of um, felt like whenever we first met, like our first kind of uh, interactions over DM? Um, I just liked your bubbly energy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am kind of uh, known and people think of me as a very energetic person. And it's always fun when I meet someone who is energetic and at times even more energetic than I am. It's, uh, it just puts me in a different part of the scale. Usually I'm the most uh, energetic in the room. When I'm not, it changes. It kind of makes me feel like I have a slightly different identity. So I, I, I really definitely caught your your energy. I love just how you were uh, enjoying simple things. You know, you take you take your walk in the in the uh, park, and you'd have your little series of uh, flower shots afterwards. And yeah. all the denim dudes taking pictures of flowers. I just love that. And um, you're from Pittsburgh. I have so many of my best friends from Pittsburgh. That almost immediately makes me want to ask someone questions when I see they're from Pittsburgh. I've never actually met a person from Pittsburgh I don't like. Uh, so it's a combination of those things. I also loved your, your Iron Heart shirts, <laughs> including the one you're wearing right now. Uh, so yeah, you turned, me, you turned me on Iron Heart. Matter of fact, I, you sent me to Self Edge in New York City, the store on Orchard Street, mm-hmm. uh, which I had never been to. And you're the person I should blame for me spending thousands of dollars. On- <laughs> so yeah, I went down there and bought my first pair of uh, salvage denim jeans were actually the Ironheart. Uh, that uh, that I picked up because of you, basically. Nice. Yeah, we got a whole twinsies outfit. We got the uh, the red flannel shirt, the six thirty three jeans, and the black mock toe boots. We can. Oh yeah, we have that. This particular <laughs> shirt I told you was Grand Fowler. This is not a. It is a beauty though. I love this. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So I mean, we obviously you know had a great you know start to our communication, but there was one point where you know you were kind of holding back, and you know you kind of had some definitely some feelings. I'm not sure what they were, but you know, whenever you came out to me over there, you know, I, you said it was very difficult for you to do. What were you thinking? Like, what was like in your head kind of going through the, that process of kind of like coming out to a stranger? Wow. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, he's a tenor, a very successful tenor. He uses the phrase always coming out. Even if you're out, you're constantly coming out. Um, I, what came from a generation like literally growing up where you know, being gay was just simply not something visible. And uh, I could really tell you a very long story, uh, it just, just how uh, crazy my story is really about my own sexual identity. Um, just basically tell you the craziest part is that I, have an, I had an older brother who was gay and being the second gay son in the family uh, was definitely not something that was easy to explain to people. Uh, matter of fact, I didn't really explain it to people till, till many years later. Um, so yeah, I, I don't talk about being gay in my feed, mostly because um, it's, a, it's a style feed. It's not, I'm not really talking about and relating to my experience as a gay man. I don't see the point, uh, the point of it. So I don't go out of my way to discuss it with, with people. But at the same token, when someone asked me, Oh, I see you, you've got a, a ring. Uh, tell me about your wife. And then, of course, you know, you're at that point where you could sort of uh, go around it and say, oh, she's fine, or uh, my spouse is great. But um, to actually right there on the spot tell someone, oh, yeah, I'm married to a dude. I mean, you, you're afraid that saying that in a, to a certain degree um, is going to be something that the other person is going to respond to in a, uh, in a potentially hostile way or a potentially unsettling way or just basically be rejecting. Um, it's happened. There have definitely been times where I could feel the incredible wall go down and sort of a creepiness immediately uh, from a person. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't also talk much about my personal life in my feed because, you know, my, my other half just 
thinks Instagram and social media is ridiculous and stupid and he does not want to be in it. He really, really thinks it's ridiculous and doesn't want to be part of it. So far be it from me to say, oh, sorry, you're going to have to be dragged into it because I want to be in it. Um, but on the other hand, also, um, to tap down into something deeper, you know, telling someone who you are is, is something that should be easy and natural to do. And there's, you know, if you want to really go on a deep dive, I could tell you what it was like, what it was, you know, there was an element of not being able to tell some, some basic essential things to people uh, when I was younger. That was really, when I think back at it, I've never had a problem with being gay. I've had a problem living in a society where it mattered. I think being gay, I might, I mean, might as well not like my, my, my gray hair or uh, the color of this flannel. Those things are just what they are. So I've never had a problem with that about, about being gay. But um, being in a society where I should even have to explain it, you know, being in a, a society where it's not obvious that we shouldn't be racist, where it's not, these are to me self-evident truths that other people deserve our love and respect. So I hate having to make allowances sometimes, um, but at the same time, um, I, you know, I'm not looking to pummel people and get on a soapbox and preach to them, but I don't have, I simply don't make conditions about, about when I'm gonna love and care about other people. So when people treat me with that sort of conditionality, I, I really, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, who would? <laughs> so yeah, you were, uh, you kind of laughed. I mean, I was nervous as hell. I was nervous as hell. I was like, maybe I shouldn't just tell him because I liked you. And I thought, what's the, what's to be gained? And I'm like, but if I don't tell him, then we're never, how close is he going to be? How, what kind of friendship is that? Yeah, very true. So I took the, I did take the risk and you encouraged me really honestly um, to just deal with it much more quickly. Now where people say, Oh, tell me about your wife. I just say married to a dude or whatever. I don't feel like I have to do that long, uh, uh, that long pause and that long segue and should I, or shouldn't I, you know, I'm, I'm finding that that's, you know, you've proven to me that there are straight guys that don't care. There are lots of straight guys that don't care, uh, but there are people that I've gotten to know over the years and we have a history and it takes, but that stranger that you meet in a denim group or at a bar, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you, I still have that hesitation. I don't like it in myself. Um, but it, you know, it's getting better. I'm finding, you know, I'll be, I was going to the airport to visit some denim dudes down in Nashville mm-hmm. and the Uber driver asked me, um, about my wife. And I just said, well, I'm actually married to a dude. And, you know, I remember in the past, just don't, don't talk to the taxi driver, the Uber driver. Don't don't go into yeah. the subject because if it's someone who's not exactly open to the idea, you're stuck in a car with them for forty minutes, and mm-hmm. you know that sets off all kinds of weird thoughts in my head. But anyway, I did it. He wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy afterwards, but at least yeah. I had the hey. pleasure of knowing I just I just answered the question with the correct answer. Sure. But like you know, like I said, tell me what it was like when you know you go through high school, go through college, and not tell anyone yeah i mean that's a lot of secrets and i i i don't envy anyone from from the past who lived in a generation or or today a kid who's going to school in some area where they're still afraid to just be like hey this is who i am so yeah it's uh it's something like i said to to quote my friend my my tenor that i work with uh you're always coming out Anyone, whenever you're confronting a situation where it's not obvious, you're telling something about yourself in a way that someone who's not gay just doesn't have to do. You never have to wait for that moment to say, oh, did I mention I'm straight? Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might need to mention, hey, I'm what? What do you have to insert in the conversation and be be worried about? Uh, Jewish sometimes. Yeah. Okay. So you you do wonder once once in a while, should I tell someone Mm -hmm. that? Exactly. Yeah. So a couple of things that, that you mentioned there is one, your spouse doesn't like to be on Instagram or social media. I am the same way. My wife just wants nothing to do about it. So I think that's another thing we connect on too. Well, she but, pictures? What? Uh, she, she takes the pictures. Yeah. So, 
So that that's her involvement onto it. He's so not doing that too, but he, he took one today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but another thing is just like, how did it feel when I was just like, yeah, that's cool, bro. Or like, no big deal. Um, like I've lived with many gay guys. Like I've, I've known them, like just, I don't know, just since college. Like, I've, I mean, no, even before that, like there, there's a couple, um, John, John and, um, in high school, I knew him and he was very out and open, but yeah, it's just like, it, it's not a big deal for me. It's like, cool. You like dudes. Cool. More girls for me. Great. Uh, Oh, I love that. That's kind of, perfect. <laughs> well, I mean, if the world were like you, then we wouldn't need uh, our podcast to try to make guys be tolerant, loving, forgiving, mm-hmm. uh, open to community. I mean, you are wherever you got that ability and whoever taught you, they taught you good. You know, you Thank learned you. good and you made yourself good, um, a good person to be welcoming of who people are, you know, being themselves. So I, how did I feel? I wanted to jump, jump through the, jump through the phone and give you a hug. Um, and yeah, you made it easier for me. You made it easier for me in so many ways. I mean, my God, I, I have other, there are other gay, some of the, the denim dudes are, I have not really met many gay denim dudes. I got to tell you, I've been looking, but not happened. Uh, but I've met other gay, den, uh, other denim dudes who kind of overcompensate almost the other way. Like they're so wanting to show that they're accepting and supportive it's kind of hysterical it's just yeah. really kind of cute watching them trip over themselves to ask me how i'm doing <laughs> and tell me how great i am and how brave i am and how wonderful i am and it's kind of adorable nice well hey another thing that you were saying in there is you know you kind of grew up in um you know a different generation where where that wasn't a thing but something that kind of struck me while you were saying that is you know you also grew up in you know a time where you know, there's communication like pre-technology, pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-instant message or direct message, whatever. So how have you seen, you know, technology grow? I mean, communication grow um, with the introduction of technology and how have you seen it devolve since then? I'd be curious to see your, uh, you know, thoughts on that. Yeah, it's really, it's absolutely astounding to think when, um, when I was in high school, we had no, not, didn't even have answering machines. Think of that. So if you wanted to see your friend, you would leave a message with his parents or the phone would just ring. I'll never forget it. The phone would just ring. And you'd just be like, oh, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do something today. I can't go out and play with whomever. Yeah. Um, that's pretty incredible. Uh, go further up into college. I had to carry a, an electric typewriter in a case. It was very heavy from New York to Stanford, I you know I had to go on a plane, and one of the things yeah. I had to count on was that I was carrying this Smith Corona um, word processor called a typewriter, and um, that was ridiculous. First of all, it was very heavy, but um, yeah. Then my junior year of college, I was uh, off campus in the home of a Stanford professor that whose son I lived with, and two other guys, and he had a. Uh, an actual word processor. So I remember what it was like, like, wow, you know, with the dot matrix printer, like I could go to sit at that thing. And I typed up my, my little, my little thesis, um, my little uh, major, I was an American studies major. I had to write a a thesis about a topic to get that degree. And just, my God, I actually used the word processor. So that's how, I mean, that was 1984. I graduated from college in 1984 you weren't even close to being born yet, nope, right? Not even close. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's sure the pace of life was was necessarily different. You had to just wait. Um, you had to wait long periods of time sometimes to make plans. If they went awry, you couldn't just call someone and tell them, hey, where are you? There's a lot more guesswork. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd find out later, you'd go home and then somebody would call you later on and tell you what happened. Um, but I can really tell the difference and really feel the difference when, uh, today people can write to me from the four, from the, the corners of the world and share their little stories where you would have never been able to find people, um, you know, whether they're people who share my literary interests, my music interests, you know, some young gay kid who's like, just write to me and say, Hey, can I ask you a question? Uh, you know, I can't tell, but you know, maybe 
you know, maybe you can help me with this. And I'm just like, what would it have been like to have had that tool? Yeah. And and have somebody, you know, that you could reach out to anonymously and just speak your mind. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I started my own business. I'm I'm a music promoter without when I started the company, there was no basically the beginning of the Internet, January 2000. Um, uh, I could not have started a business without without this uh, technology. Because it, first of all, at the beginning, we worked remotely. We all worked. We didn't even have an office. We connected by, by electronic devices and met in the hotel lobbies and gave the impression through the internet, through a landing page, that this company was a place when it wasn't yet a place. So, um, you know, I, I do believe that technology uh, changes. We are fundamentally the same people, but there is no doubt. And and this goes back to some of the articles I've been reading since you and I have been talking about Mm -hmm. what we're doing. Um, People, we, we, we really are different when we are consuming so much of our information and entertainment um, at home by ourselves, you know, going to the movies, you know, when when you were a kid going to the movies with a bunch of friends was like a big social outing. Oh yeah. Um, You know, maybe kids still go to the movies in a group, but back then, Saturday movies, oh yeah, that was that was a thing. Mm-hmm. If you weren't, if you didn't go bowling, you went to the movies. That's what you did when you, uh, you know, when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, I I think it's it's uh, radically changed our connectivity, uh, these devices. And once again, like all other things, there's the upside and the downside. The upside is I met this guy in Pittsburgh, who I'm talking to today, who I would have never met in a million years, probably. Um, at the same token, um, yeah, I, I think it is something we have to be very aware of and think about um, why are we using uh, using that phone. One thing I do when I get on an elevator now, the phone goes in my pocket, and I if I see anyone on the elevator who's not looking at their phone, I talk to them. Yeah, you actually uh, inspired me to do that, and I've been having tons of elevator conversations now. So, yeah, um, lots of looking at the phone, uh, but now it's just like, Hey, like, what's up? You know, how's the weather out there? I'm, I'm doing laundry, you know, or Hey, you're coming in. And exactly. especially if you live in, a, in an apartment building in mm-hmm. Manhattan and your neighbors, you're constantly surrounded by, by neighbors. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can go for years and not even see the person on your same floor. But if you, if you don't use that one opportunity when you're standing in the elevator to actually make eye contact and talk to somebody, there's really not, you, you go into your little cubicle, you know, you open your apartment door and you tuck yourself away. Uh, that elevator is that one little commercial uh, social space uh, that, that you have to, to, to talk to people. And I think, I think, I do think that that's something that we are longing uh, for now and need more of now um, is, are these social spaces, um, you know, in whether in, in the suburbs where you spend a lot of your time in cars, Listening, listening to books and podcasts or whatever you listen to on the radio, um, you know you're, you're isolated in your car. In New York, you could you're on that subway, but a lot of people they have their headphones. Yep. You know you don't really talk to people who have their headphones on, uh, and the studies you know even show that that um, I think I don't know I read a recent uh, report and they talked about people on on the subway. Um, you know basically they're happier. If they talk to the to strangers, they actually have done studies and and uh, it's counterintuitive. Like talking to strangers was supposed to be scared and sure. I'm sure there are certain circumstances where talking to strangers is probably not yeah, a great probably idea. Not a, the greatest idea, but not the greatest idea. But, I think um, more often than not, you know, you're going to have an enjoyable experience or at least learn but, something. Or so so this device um, has connected me with you. It's connected me with a lot of other people and there's no doubt um about i would say three years ago when i started my feed two and a half years ago whatever it was i was definitely in a in a a lonely uh phase i had i mentioned it previously when we talked that i was very very close with um he was was the music director of the new york philharmonic he was my client Mm -hmm. and he was that he had that job for eight years and he had a, a a wife and three kids and parents who actually used to play in the New York Philharmonic. They were an amazing family. They're some of my, they've become my close, some of my closest friends. But when they, after eight years of having them every day in my life, they all moved to Europe 
suddenly my social life was really different. And, and I, I think that was one of the reasons I was subconsciously uh, posting things uh, on my feed was that I had a lot more time on my hands. I just like, wow. And thank goodness, I, I have to say, like within a year, I had two pretty good friends. Um, you know, now you and I, 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 there's maybe four or five people I would put in the really good friends department in two years. That's more than the previous 20 years making oh, yeah. really good new friends. So, you know, these devices have been a disaster in so many ways, but uh, from a certain point of view, they've been a boon probably to helping me combat what might've been a lonely time. I'm not raising kids. You know, I have, you know, a busy job, lots of clients, lots of friends, lots of employees. But um, yeah, I, this, this, uh, this device has really helped me uh, uh, spread a pretty wide social net. I mean, I'm loving that I'm hanging around with not just people on, in New York City who go to uh, classical music concerts and operas all the time. I'm talking to woodworkers and I'm talking to construction guys yeah. and I'm talking to uh, computer experts. I'm talking to farmers. I mean, I'm amazed. I mean, it really is extraordinary that my little circle of friends is much more diverse than it's ever been in my life. And it also gives me hope, you know, for all the talk in our, in our culture that America is falling apart. That's a, that is because we're being, you know, manipulated by whether it's politicians, by certain media outlets that thrive on division. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, people do want to connect with each other. And it's possible. It's very much possible. It has to be a a goal. It has to be a priority. It, nothing happens until we make it a priority. So my philosophy is very simple. People first. Absolutely. So, you know, you talked a whole lot about how, you know, phones and technologies really, uh, you know, help you, um, you know, just connect with others. But one thing that I'm really curious is about is how you kind of connected with yourself and got your identity. And one thing that, you know, I, I'm really, really, um, you know, just proud of you for, you know, amazed at is, you know, the story of your book. So I kind of want to get into that a little bit uh, because you had a very tragic thing happen to you. You, you know, were lost for so long and then you decided to write a book. Not only did you decide to write that, but you woke up, you know, worked from like five in the morning to seven in the morning and just like for a year and change, you know, the long yeah. time, um, just really... Yeah got this out of you and, and, you know, went through a very transformative journey. So I'd love to hear uh, your, you know, thoughts and, you know, experiences with that. Yeah, it was, um, it was turned out to be a 642 page book. And, um, you know, long story short, I mean, it's a long story. Um, yeah, I, I, I've always been inspired by literature. I love big, books. Sure. I love narratives. In many ways, I think I approach life like an author of my own life. I, uh, you know, in a way, I shape certain periods in my life and think of them certain ways as looking back on them. But even looking forward, I sort of see them as, oh, uh, there's, a, there's a new time in my life coming uh, where I'm going to be focusing more on um, inner life, on family, on relationship, et cetera. So I, books and, and that way of connecting uh, the disparate events in our lives and making a narrative out of them have always been part of my, my, my sense of myself. And also I had one of my great mentors was a high school teacher who taught, taught me how to read and write. He literally put a list of books on, on, the, on a chalkboard that became you know 50 books that I've read, I think pretty much all of them. Um, and, and he taught me, uh, he made me fall in love with, with books and with, and with literature. So, um, I, I there was always a little bit of a desire in me. So one day I was going to write a book. Um, and I, I've written lots about music. I've written a ton of liner notes and, and all kinds of things that are in magazine articles. Mm -hmm. I had a, a blog uh, for a while at Huffington Post about music, but, but, um, you know, to get back to the, the tragedy that you mentioned, now, I had a brother, uh, my older brother, who died um, the year I turned 40, and he was gay. He died of AIDS, and uh -huh. that was a very long, traumatic process. He was sick a long time. I can um, imagine. That bonded me with my mother very, very closely because my mother suffered uh, greatly um, as uh, losing a son. 
And my mother and I had a very, a very special relationship. We talked a lot uh, and we talked about philosophy. My mom, very, my mom loved to call me and talk about what was important in life. She would just say, you know, she'd call me up and just be like, you know, Albert, something happened. And, you know, the way I see it, shall we say, the, oh, the way I see it, this is mm-hmm. this lesson that I learned. My mom was not a college educated person, but she was very, very wise. She was full of life. She was the center of our family, the center of a very large social structure, friends yeah. and family. My mother was the center of all of it. And, um, you know, about 10 years after my brother died, my, nine years after my, my mother was remarried um, a long time ago and, and uh, her husband passed away, yeah. her second husband. And she was very, very distraught. She was 70 years old. And was the first time in her life she had lived alone. She got married to me when she was 18. She had kids almost immediately, three kids, and um, she had never lived alone. And um, suddenly she's 70 living alone. And wow. she was, you know, there was this, this was a very, very hard experience for her. And her and her husband were joined at the hip. They were like definitely one of those couples that did everything yeah. together. And um, we, we spent a year, that year after my stepfather died, we got even closer. I'm sure you did. Yeah. My sister spent a lot of time with my mother and partially it was, we wanted to bring her back to life. She was very depressed and very sad. And, um, we, we wanted to help her want to live again in a way. Mm -hmm. And and we had never seen my mom really depressed like this before. And, um, you know, towards the end of this year after my stepfather died, we threw this party for her and, it was a dinner party. I took her to a really fancy restaurant and um, she agreed to go with all her kids and stepkids and their kids. And we were going to do the big family, big tradition that we used to do yeah. going back to, to the Caribbean uh, and being on the beach for Christmas time. And we went to Mexico and I literally remember watching my mom doing tequila shots <laughs> with my, with my nephews and my mom, I, one of the images I had of my mom giving me a thumbs up from the end of a very long table of 20 people in Mexico, like uh, mom's back. And, and I was so overjoyed, like, wow, we did it. Mom's back. Oh my God. I remember the, the last day before we were going back to New York, uh, we had taken a walk on the beach, just me, my mom and my sister. And it was just that quiet joy of me being with the two most, wonderful people imaginable my sister's like you she's a bundle of joy she's <laughs> smiles she has two beautiful daughters she's such a happy she has a beautiful husband she's such a happy person she's so funny um just stay, walking with my mom and, and sister on the beach and seeing my mom replenished yeah. and that about five o'clock that evening she said hey kids i'm out of here and that meant she was going back to her room and the tradition the the routine was you go to your room you get get changed mm-hmm. and you meet down in the lobby for cocktails and she didn't come down to the lobby and of course i went up to her room uh i was knocking and my mom i figured she fell asleep and it turned out she had had a stroke Ooh. and um you know to go from in my hand was like the prize mom's living again and back yeah. That morning, she was on a canoe, a canoe in the ocean with my sister. Like, we have a picture. It's almost like a picture of now, a very almost almost legendary picture of my mom in that canoe that morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she would, never woke up. She was in a hospital in Mexico. Uh, that was a very traumatic experience. Uh, didn't speak Spanish. And um, at first, they were telling me my mom probably had done drug do- overdose, which made me laugh hysterically. Um, I knew she had a stroke, honestly, because my, my, my grandmother, her mother had died of a stroke. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we had to send the whole family back and I stayed with my sister and my stepsister because my mom couldn't be, tra- she couldn't uh, travel. We couldn't take her back because mm-hmm. she, com- she was comatose, yeah. essentially. And, um, you know, the trauma of that time was, was pretty great. I, it was very traumatic. Uh, three or four days in, I had to, uh, I had a charter plane, a medical evacuation plane to get my mother home. 
Uh, I had to figure out a way to come up with all this money to pay the bill to get her out of the hotel because there were like gangsters hanging around, like asking me when I was <laughs> settled yeah. the bill. It was it was pretty wild. Um, she was treated very nicely there. It was, I mean, it was terrible. It was horrific being there, you know, in the condition she was in. And we finally got her back. I mean, I literally had to fly on a plane all by myself. I sent my sister and my stepsister home. So if you want to ask me my saddest night in my life is being on a plane with my mom, comatose, you know, in, on a plane by myself, you know, and I'm above the world. I'm literally in a plane above the world, just sitting there with my mom. And it was like the loneliest moment yeah and about huge contrast of like hey we just got my mom back and like i feel i'm on 100 right now and then next thing i know it's just taken away from me exactly and that is life sometimes that happens to us in life um, i think this was a particularly uh crazy uh, even today when i tell people they kind of look at me in shock like that happened to you I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not embellishing what happened. I, Wayne, if I told you more of the details, you wouldn't believe it. So yeah. about two weeks, uh, we, we got my mom back. She died two weeks later in New York. And um, I was, I had never really been in a deep personal depression. I had yeah. been very sad to lose my brother. I had kind of, in a way, learned about suffering through the suffering of others. You know, when my parents had a really messy divorce, I watched my mother suffer. I learned from that. I, I suffered through the suffering of my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also had a crazy meltdown with my dad, but that's for a future episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I my mom died, and I, of course, in my usual fashion, uh, was trying to tell the world that I was fine. And I, um, I was just walking around like the walking dead. I literally would hear a an ambulance go by and it reminded me of what happened in Mexico and in New York is an ambulance every 10 minutes, every five minutes, I would like be pinned the wall sweating from it. It was like a, you know, shock of some sort. And um, anyway, a whole series of events happened and I basically decided that I was going to die. I decided that um, I had lost my brother. I I was turning 50, lost my, my mother, uh, I was kind of tired of lo- of loss and yeah. just feeling like, you know what? The next one's going to be me. And in a weird way, it kind of made me start having this black comedy. Like, oh my God, I'm going to die anyways. Who the fuck cares how depressed I am? And I started quietly pulling out of this funk that I was in. And just when I climbed out of that funk, I uh, um, was coming back from a trip to Montreal, I, five months after my mom died, we went to Montreal. And uh, I was feeling like, I'm, I'm coming back now. Yeah. And I was up pretty late that night. I had a sinus headache the last night in Montreal and I took a, one of those sinus pills. I woke up though feeling like something had moved in me and I felt like, I'm back. I'm gonna go back to New York and seize mm-hmm. the day. And on the way home, I fell asleep at the wheel, flipped a car at 65 miles what? an hour on the New York State Thruway. And we woke up upside down in the car. Upside, I was literally strapped in, Brian and I, upside down in the car. Jeez. So, you know, when you're upside down in a car, um, you know, you're, you think about things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, it was a miracle. We walked away with a, a bump and a scratch at 65 yeah. miles an hour, which is a miracle. Ooh. And um, anyway, in the course of the next week, I was at by turns like shattered and like, commit me now. Now I'm ready for full commitment to a mental institution Mm -hmm. uh, to I got incredible support and wisdom from some friends. My best friend gave me the best speech of all time and just said, your mother saved you guys. Your mother, your mother was guided that car and this was a miraculous event and seeing it as a miraculous event i began to like feel that it was a miraculous event and i went out to california for some work and while i was in, out in california i by accident met this therapist uh, in the pool i was in a pool like just lounging it was almost like a scene from the graduate you know like with dustin hoffman's on the mm-hmm. lounge i was just in the pool like i thinking about what i had been through and this woman started just talking to me. And she goes, what? She said, 
you're giving off some really weird energy. I'm like, what happened to you? It turned out she was a psychiatrist. I had never been yeah. to a psychiatrist. And we had an absolutely incredible conversation. But she's just like, do you realize what you've been through? It's, you know, you've been through a terrible, terrible trauma. No wonder you've been, you know, that's, that's why you've been feeling what you've been feeling. Having this woman say this, like, clicked that other thing mm-hmm. in my head and just made me realize, like, okay, this has been a crazy old, crazy mind game that's been going on. But uh, I better get my, I just better start moving on and looking ahead and, and co- finding a way to process this grief. And I probably should have gone to a, a regular therapist. And I probably should have gone to a support group. And I should probably should have gone to a grief counseling. But of course, my mom was sort of against all that. And I was following my mom's footsteps and kind of figuring, do it yourself. You got to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I realized that the, the craziness of this story made for like the perfect like therapeutic book that I could write. Like yeah. what started with this terrible trauma you know, this, uh, I'm upside down in the car ended yeah. with like that year uh, was my 50th birthday. I threw like the best, craziest party on the roof of a hotel, 75 people, more martinis than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, every facet of my life, from my personal life to my work life was there. Mm-hmm. It was one of the most, it was one of the greatest, craziest parties. It was nuts, but it was also um, my- a Celebration of life. Yeah, my celebration of my, my return to life. Anyway, that's basically what I've told you is what the book is about. And, yeah. and I'll tell you what prompted the book. Me understanding, like I said, besides the fact that I always wanted to be a writer um, and loved literature so much, was that um, I read a book called The War of Art. And highly, I highly recommend The sure. War of Art. And The War of Art basically tells you how to overcome resistance to being who you want to be. And this was recommended to me by actually by the person I later married. Oh, who I've been now together with 25 years. You know, first we couldn't get married, wasn't legal. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, this book basically talked about resistance and it just said the way that you write is to write. And that's when I committed to getting up first thing in the morning before I checked my work email to when I, mm-hmm. uh, to when I was distracted by other things from five till seven in the morning. All I did was, um, was work on my book. And it got finished. I mean, I'll never forget the last two weeks I wrote it uh, up at my house in the Hudson Valley mm-hmm. uh, in a blizzard. It was like The Shining. Yeah. It was by myself. It was like minus 20 degrees. And it was, it was very much like The Shining. There's like me in the screen. And just like suddenly on my, on my desk was a, a manuscript this big. And I was like, holy smokes. I actually did it. I wrote a 640-page book, which... You know, at first I was like horrified and terrified, like this must be so terrible. And then I had the, the uh, uh, courage to share it with some people. And at first I shared it with my sister and she was very upset. Really? really upset. Interesting. Was, like, why are you sharing our, this is our personal. She was very upset. I said, okay, I'm going to burn it. I'm going to put it under, uh, I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to burn it. Nice. And about a week later, she called up. She said, she said Albert. You know, I think it's actually kind of a beautiful tribute to mom and to our brother. And, you know, I realized that my sister didn't know my story. She didn't know what it was like for me to grow up as oh, yeah. a positive gay brother. And she knew mm-hmm. none of it. And I think at first she was just shocked by oh, all, sure, these yeah. all these secrets I kept. And, you know, I'm not sure what will happen. If, maybe it'll get published. Maybe it won't. But my, one of my goals was just don't write the worst book ever. And it's not. I think it's actually okay. Yeah, okay. I, I'll share it you sometime if you want to. Even better, maybe someday I'll, I'll get it published. Yeah, I'll read it when it's published. How about that? <laughs> I got a list of like 50 books on my, my oh. bookshelf before I can handle that. And 642 pages, whoo! I hear it's a fast read. Oh, shit. <laughs> one of my oh, friends read it in a week, three-day weekend. I'm a very slow reader. So <laughs> for me, it's I, I really like to enjoy it. And uh, one of my college professors said, um, 20 pages to take you an hour to read to fully comprehend it. And that kind of stuck with me to, to really understand something. And I try to, you know, really use that and, and really try to understand because re- readings, you know, you don't always retain that information through, through word, you know, you really have to digest it. And, you know, someone wrote something like what you did, like you put hours 
days of your life into this, you know, book, into this manuscript. And throughout time, people have done that too. So I really want to honor their commitment and, and honor their, their words by trying well, to fully digest it. That's really a beautiful thing. Honestly, I think I read more quickly than that. And that maybe is actually not a good thing. I think there's, there's something to be said to slow down and pay more attention to uh, pay more attention to those words. But looking back at what I did, I realized also it was, it was really, really interesting to see what, what I put into the book. Cause I deliberately said it has to bear some relevance into telling the story of how I got to this crisis Mm-hmm. and how I got past the crisis. If it, it didn't matter. The other, anything that didn't feed into that, and I guess maybe partially what I realized was almost that everything that happened to me had led to the crisis, and almost everything that happened since led sort of led to the, the resolution. And of course, that continues to happen. Crises yeah. come, and they get resolved, and crises come, and they get resolved. And if we're smart about it, we learn from it. They come a little more quickly. They pass more quickly and um, we learn more from them. So what was your biggest lesson that you learned from that entire experience? Like what was like your one big takeaway from that? Of writing the book. Yeah. And like finishing Um, it and like it's done. Like that's, it's like in your past now. It's like, it's like a triumph. It's like a medal of honor. You know, you you have that. It's, sorry about that uh, sound. Um, It's interesting you said that um, because one thing it is, is uh, it's the first 50 years of my life. And it feels kind of fun to say, you know what? I don't need to talk about what happened. Uh, you know, I could think about fond memories of high school, but I don't need to analyze some of the things that happened in high school, like my parents splitting up. No. Um, it kind of did make me feel like that chapter could be neatly packaged in a way, like instead of in a way, it was a it was a form of of therapy. There's no doubt about it. I mean, mm-hmm. if I had gone to to a, a psychiatrist and told them the same story that went into the book, it, it would have been a variation on the same story, trying to make sense out of all these all these uh, um, events. But um, I was very proud. At the same token, I also realized even when you tell your own story, um, there's so much of your life, especially the older you get. You know, right now, you're you're not quite half my age. But at a certain point, as you get older, you feel you feel a little bit like a hard drive that's mm-hmm. really full, full, and you're like I feel like I needed to out, to to out outsource some of it, download mm-hmm. some of it. Uh, what do they call that? You know, out, uh, external hard drive. Mm-hmm. The book became, in a way, my external hard drive. Like I put it all on there, and now I I, I look back, you know, to the more recent past, it's sort of the beginning of my of a new phase of my life. Hopefully, you know, something where. You know, life has a different set of, of goals and challenges mm-hmm. and hopefully achievements. Yeah, well, that's that's really great to hear. You know, just kind of getting that out of you. So it's like, that's there. Like, I can focus on other things. Like, this is in my past. So that's really refreshing to hear that, you know, you can turn a new page. You know, yeah, there's all, keep that there's only so much past that's that's makes relevant. Sense carry. You know, you know the, mm-hmm. the, we all carry around way too much past. I'm amazed. I'll talk to people and they talk about not being told that they were loved by their parents when they were six or seven. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's powerful. That's very, Mm -hmm. very powerful. That's a long, long time to feel that. And and maybe there was no possibility for getting beyond it. Mm -hmm. And, but part of me is thinking maybe there is, you know, and I, I I really wonder because otherwise, um, you know, what's the hope in a way? Like we are, if we get certain conditions in life, does that mean we can't really be happy? Like, oh, you were one of the unlucky ones. You didn't have the parents who told you they love you. No, I, I, I think there's a possibility of transcendence for for everybody. I, I, I sort of believe that. I think that's the nature of transcendence. We are, yeah. our job is to figure out what we've been given and make the best of that thing we've been given. Absolutely. So one, one thing you said in there, uh, along with like the, hey, and I wasn't getting love, you know, back when I was younger, you know, this brings me back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's, uh, you know, something that I've kind of held on to for, for a while. And, and it's really kind of like lends some more clarity later in my life. Um, but how it goes is um, it starts the base of it. It's like a pyramid bottom of it. We'll put, um, you know, a picture in the show notes again, uh, since I did I'll reference it last time. <laughs> yeah. So physiological, which is like, you know, house, food, uh, water, um, you know, just 
being able to like legitimately just take care of yourself. Um, Material things that we need yeah, to survive. Yeah, just to like literally survive. You know, second is safety, you know, you know, being protected, you know, having resources like employment, you know, of your family, of your health and property. Then what I think you kind of hit on there is the the love and belonging. You know, you need your friendship, you know, you need family, you need some sexual intimacy in there. And if you don't get that at a young age, you know, that, that might stop you, um, you know, from going higher up, which, you know, the next one is esteem, where you have your self-esteem, you have your own confidence, you have achievement, um, you have respect of others and respect by others. And sometimes that can, you know, if you're always chasing that, you're always chasing, you know, belonging, um, that's going to prevent you from the self-actualization. Actualization. Yeah, that word. I can't say the name of our podcast, but I can say. <laughs> yeah, apparently I can't. So that is kind of just becoming your becoming your best self, and you know, accepting the facts, discarding you know prejudice, being able to you know problem solve no matter what, being creative and and being spontaneous, and you know, you kind of need to have those base layers before you can you know jump up to the self actualization part. Um, so like when you say that, like, hey, I wasn't loved as a kid, like you know, you're man, you're stuck right there in the middle and you're kind of, you're, you're chasing. Yeah, I was, I was very, very lucky. There's no doubt. I mean, my mom was a, was a very, very loving mom. You had to say that, you know, that my mom, it, uh, it was almost overwhelming. Like I was so, I, my mom's love was so pre- prevalent that you, and so powerful that you really felt like you were committing a sin if you did anything to, to betray her trust in you. It oh, was wow. kind of almost a heavier, oh yeah. It's like, like you know this woman's giving her all and doing everything in her power so if you do anything less than that you're not living up to your side of the bargain so it was a, it was a very high bar but it was also beautiful to feel that love and uh, you know i've always felt it fairly easy to give my love to people to give uh, to people who um you know people of various people i know very intimately and people i don't really know very much love seems like a pretty it's it's a it's a pretty easy thing for me to access. So I'm 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 really grateful for that. Yeah, that's something to be, you know, cultivate a lot of gratitude for. Now, whenever you kind of you know give this love, do you feel it's because you know you're at you know peace with yourself, like you know who you are, and you know no one's gonna you know drag you down because of it, or is there another reason behind it? Um, I mean, I do think philosophically, I be- I believe that love really is. Um, the, the, the sole thing that makes life have meaning. Okay. Um, I, you know, when I see any kind of religious activity that, that in any way goes against what love is, I, I, I absolutely reject the idea of that religion having any, any legitimacy. Um, love, love is that positive creative force we, that we essentially just cannot do alone. It's something we have to do with, with someone. Um, and I, you know, in that way, it's kind of the opposite of death. You know, death is the thing that you can't share with someone and love's the thing you can't do alone. You know, it would make sense that they kind of fight their, they're kind of antithetical forces in a way. Right. At the same time, they're like same side, two sides of the coin, um, but of the same coin. But um, yeah, I just, to me, it just, has always felt good to feel loved. It's always felt good to love others. And it's test, it, it's survived the test of all, my growth as, a, as an individual. It passes the test intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. I've not found anything that would undermine my idea that I'm supposed to love other people. Right. I just can't find any way to pick apart the argument for love. Right on. Yeah, love conquers all, right? All right, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So I got one last question for you here. You know, we we went through some pretty heavy topics onto there, but can you share the happiest day of your life? Oh wow, yeah, you you sort of had a very clear cut in uh, the birth of a child, and I mm-hmm. totally can understand that. I'm not a parent, but yeah. I can understand why that would be so powerful. Um, I, I I would say um, I would say it's a couple of. A couple of days that really, really stood out. But maybe the day that I moved in to our house in the country. Okay. It was, um, I remember being a kid 
and thinking, wow, you know, being an adult is so cool. You get to make, you get to have a house where you have the, you get to dictate the rules. Mm-hmm. And that just seemed like when you're a kid, it seemed like the most far off goal to have. Like, I'm going to have the house and I decide whether or not I can have pro party or have people over or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, we got very lucky. We found a beautiful home uh, on the, the edge of the woods in the Hudson Valley with a view of the rolling hills. And never in my wildest dream could I have imagined um, be, uh, being a kid from New York, you know, work, working in the field, promoting music. It was not exactly like I was some big financial big shot. Uh, I never thought I was going to have this thing. And not only did I have this thing, I had it with someone I loved. I'll never forget, actually, I'll never forget, it was a really cold, um, brisk, early spring day. And I had gone for a big, long jog. Mm-hmm. And I just remember coming back to this house and seeing this glow from my living room of my new house um, from the ro- from the driveways set back the house and I saw this glow from my own house and I just like stood there at the driveway like oh my god that's my house and the glow was you know my other half had lit a fire and we had no furniture really there was nothing in the house but when I walked in it was just like our space and this beautiful fire and just realized that you know that was 20 years ago the the number of memories of just joyous memories parties and music and and nature everything that i've had here has been totally transforming in my life so this was this really became a little bit of a portal um especially for me i, I was from new york city i mean we, we in high school junior high school I, we lived in the suburbs but i'm kind of like it was a city kid mentality having that learned nature is pretty damn good it makes me feel really good to be in it was 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 kind of transformative and it's a big, big part of my life now. Nice. Yeah, that was that. That was that was. <laughs> right on, man. Well, Albert, I appreciate you allowing me to interview you and sharing part of your story and just you know being able to communicate with you here. So I'm going to go ahead and close up this show. Thank you so much for listening to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. This is Adam Glinsky and Albert Imperato, where we're helping men communicate and build empathy. Have a good one.